What we wanted to, uh, to start this week on was a sermon series called uh, James, the book of James, Faith and Work. So we're going to be talking about that in the next, uh, within the next six weeks, we'll be talking about four weeks of those six. And we'll be talking on some important highlighted subjects throughout the book. So I'll share a little bit of the background today and then kind of hit into chapter one. And then we'll, um, we'll be able to um, talk a little bit more about that as we move forward. But one of the reasons why I thought it would be, well, first of all, I prayed and asked God to give me a particular subject or leading of what he wants me to talk about. And I sensed it was the book of James. James. And a lot of the reason why is because in, in our world today, faith is something that we as believers need to get a hold of more often in our lives. We need to be more, uh, more focused on faith because too often we take it for granted. Faith is both, we have the content of faith and then we have the verb which is to act on our faith. And so the book of James highlights both of those in, in certain ways, but it's a practical book, and so we'll talk a little bit about it. But I came across um, an article in Barna, Barna Group, which is a, an organization that is leading most in research about what's really going out on there in the world and how people perceive faith, spirituality, Christianity, meaning there are researches out there and polls that are taken about how they either view us or how they view God. And so one of these articles is entitled uh, Post-Christian. Uh, what's, what's particularly out there? What are the locations where it's post-Christianity? And they had found that the top 10 cities of the United States are actually eight of those top 10 are in the Northeast or New England. So here's the criteria of which they determined or the qualifier of which they determined what would considered a highly post-Christian Christians. And so there was, I think, 76,000 people uh, through phone calls were, were researched and asked for polls about information. So of these factors, they found out of these people that they researched a few things here. One is they, they do not believe in God. That's one. Two, they identify themselves as either an atheist or agnostic. Three, disagree, disagree that faith is important in their lives. Four, have not prayed to God in the last week. Five, have never made a commitment to Jesus. And this is probably leaning uh, millennials and what they are known as Gen Z. Today they call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They have really no affiliation of Christianity or any kind of denomination. Uh, they disagree with the Bible's accuracy, have not donated money to a church in the last year, have not attended a Christian church in the last six months, agree that Jesus committed sins, do not feel responsibility to share their faith. Now, these are so-called Christians, but we don't know how deep they are, have not read the Bible, um, have not volunteered at church. So you have those who are um, either saying they're Christian or not, but whatever the case is, they're researching it and they're seeing that what's out there. What are we dealing with in reference even to this area? If this is considered the Northeast and New England's just a tad little bit further up, 
Um, what are people thinking out there? How important is that for the church? What should the church be doing to reach people like these? Where are we as a church, as a body of Christ, or as a universal or local church, what are we doing to become not only more attractional, but how are we creating relationships with these people? Now, I get it. It's hard to talk to people who don't believe in God. I get it. It's hard to talk to people who apparently grew up in the faith but really haven't accepted Jesus. I get it that it's really challenging to talk to someone who doesn't, is not like-minded. It's easy to gravitate to, the, to those who are more like you, who believe like you, who agree like you, who believe that Christ is Lord. But what is the church doing? Now, I'm not referring just to Bethlehem, but I'm referring to the universal church. These are important research polls because they're telling us what the people are thinking out there. If we walk up to someone, they won't tell us this. They're skeptic. They're cynical. They're not going to open up to us and say, this is what we believe. Why is this important when we look at our faith? Why is it important when we think about who, who we're supposed to be focusing on. Because too often when we're focusing on situations and circumstances and the world and that around us, we forget about the most important uh, thing in our lives, which is Jesus Christ and faith. And that's what I think James does. James does a really good job of highlighting faith in the midst of chaos. Now, just a little bit of a background as you think about the book of James. James is the half-brother of Jesus, who's the author of this book. There were four people that could have been the author, but it's more, uh, the scholars have looked and saw that it would more likely be Jesus' half-brother. He once rejected Jesus in John 7, 5, um, but then later we found in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 that he trusted in Christ for salvation. So he trusted in his half-brother. He didn't believe that his half-brother was the Messiah and then came to that. He was also a strategic leader in the church of Jerusalem at the time of the book of Acts when it was uh, highlighted in the narrative. He was one of the three that started the church and the church of Jerusalem, which was an important church because that was the, the mainstay of the church where people would go to look to see about doctrine, about where the movement of the Spirit of God was going. Because when you're thinking about it in the narrative, they didn't understand how the Spirit was moving. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was the agent that was carrying out the message of the gospel. Remember the Pentecost, and then when you have from there the inaugurating of the church, and then what's highlighted is the Spirit of God moving where now we're seeing salvation come about. Remember, the church was considered the way. That's what they were called, the way. They weren't even called Christians until Acts 11 in Antioch, but the way. And it was unfolding. Not in God's mind, but God was revealing and manifesting himself through his leaders, which then went from, from 12 to 3 back to 70 and 120 in the upper room. Why this is important to understand is because when you're looking at James, we also know that it had to be dated somewhere around between 44 and 49 A.D. because, he, because of Steve, Stephen's martyrdom and also prior to Jerusalem Council. Now in Acts 15, again, very important. Why? Because the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the leaders, and Judaism were dictating what salvation could still become. Salvation 
when we saw that was in Christ and Christ alone in the person and work of Christ, they were adding Judaism or the law as a stipulation for salvation. So at the Jerusalem Council, they were unfolding that. They were talking about it. They were debating that. And after the first missionary journey, Paul comes back with Barnabas and says, we have stories to tell you about the movement of the Spirit of God. It was a living faith. That was unfolding. So James attests of this. But he's also, he's dealing with this because in the background, in the book, he's dealing with Jewish believers. So as he's speaking to Jewish believers, anytime you're looking at a scripture or any kind of book in the Bible, you have to understand that, you have to understand the background. Who is he writing to? What's the intent of the author? Not only the intent of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit writing through the author. And here he's conveying that. So this book, as I mentioned, is a practical book, Wisdom, known as the New Testament book for wisdom. Wisdom is applied knowledge. So you have intellectual scent, and then you have practicality to it. So that which you know you should be putting to practice. We're really good at knowing things. We're just having a difficult time putting it into practice. Because practice means that we actually have to ask God to change us. That's the challenge. See, it's easy to say or debate or discuss about what God needs to do with us. It's another thing to take that step toward God and say, okay, now, Lord, you got to change me. Because that takes effort. In one sense, it can almost take a matter of a work. Because the effort is surrender. The effort is saying, okay, God, change me. So James is highlighting this. So he's talking to Jews. He has the backdrop of Judaizers. He has the backdrop of people demanding that the law must remain in salvation. And now he has the background, too, of rich, pompous people who are prideful and arrogant looking down upon poor people. And now the movement is happening where Christians are not only Jewish, but they're slowly becoming more more open to the idea of Gentiles because in Acts 10, Peter is open to that when God reveals it to him. So the Jews are struggling, and that's why in chapter one, verse one, James is highlighting something here. And throughout the book, we have to understand that he's, he's highlighting something even more. Throughout the book, he's trying to say that the world is at enmity with God, and he's speaking against it. Um, today, we don't want the world to enter into the church, but we want the world to enter into the building and be here on Sundays (laughs) because we don't want the mentality of the world here, the world system, to overtake what we believe is Christ-like, superintended, what we call theological or a superintending of God and and his theos, but we want to make sure that we don't want the world's immorality to enter in. Now, the world's immorality, similar to what we call the flesh. And when we look at the book of James, we also know there's a contemporary of Galatians because it was written around the same time. And even James is mentioned in there in verse, or chapter 2, verse 9, that he's the pillar of the church, one of the pillars. He's one of the three. And so when you're looking at this and you're looking at this book, you have to understand the the basic background and mindset of it. So James warns of the following. In chapter 4, he warns that there should be no friendship with the world. It's empty with God. Chapter 1, he says there's pure and undefiled religion. Keep yourself, oneself 
unstained from the world. He says the worldliness in the church has revealed itself in many number of ways. Chapter 2, he talks about a callousness towards the poor. Chapter 3 talks about the uncontrolled and critical speech, the uncontrolled tongue and the critical speech. He talks about in chapter 3 an earthly, unspiritual, devilish wisdom contrary to God's wisdom. One that's envious and selfish in ambition that produces dissensions and violent quarrels. Chapter 4 talks about pride and arrogance. Chapter 1 we're going to be talking about today is a double-mindedness. Chapter 1, he says, it leads to a failure of placing our faith into practice to put faith into practice. So all of this to say in the backdrop and throughout the book, James is trying to warn the Christians about the world system and those who are outside of them and how important faith is essential to their walk with God. Now, there's not in this particular book an outstanding statement of Christ. In fact, you won't see it but you'll see the highlights of it. And as we look at it, even in chapter 1, we'll know about faith, we'll know about God, and we know about Jesus. So let's look at chapter chapter 1 and verse 1 through 8 we're going to look at today. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. It's a dysphoria, which is a scattering, a persecution, even in Chapter 8 of Acts, we see that Stephen, um, or excuse me, Paul was named Saul, but Stephen was martyred, and then Saul went about threatening the people of the way and then had people killed and murdered for the sake of following Christ. And then we saw that in chapter 8, they scattered, but in chapter 11, through the scattering and the persecution, a church started in Antioch. So through all this dysphoria and the scattering, God is still at work. And the chaos and the trial and the difficulty and the impossibilities and the uncertainties, God is still at work. So when he's highlighting this, he's talking about it in the backdrop saying that they're dispersed everywhere, all Christians, Jews, and now they're becoming Christians. They're following the way of Christ. But there's that battle going on. And then verse 2, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I truly like it the way it says in the NET. It says, my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a trial, I'm not very joyful. I'm not excited about a trial. If you tell me, Bruno, you're about to enter in a trial, are you excited? I said, no, let me run from it. I run far. I try to find a rescue. I try to fix it. I try to avoid it. I escape from it. I don't want anything to do with it. In fact, we Don't we do that too often in our lives? We see something coming and we avoid it. We try to stop it. But James is coming with a whole different perspective. James is saying, consider it joy. And I've always wondered, and I sit here, and for many years and 30 years in the Lord, of all the pressure that he saw, of all the mentioning of the, the backdrop, it just hit me even again, researching this this passage. He highlights that joy, that word joy, because he puts it it in in another word before joy. He says consider. Now the word counter considered in the Greek simply means this, to engage in an intellectual process, to think or consider. So when you're stopping, you're thinking and saying, okay, I've got to consider this trial a joy. Why? Why would pain be joyful right now? 
Why would someone hurting me, speaking against me, putting me down, slandering me, telling me that I'm no good is really joyful? Because I am in Christ and I'm supposed to be joyful. Then he goes on, I, I look at the word joy and it means the experience of gladness, where there's nothing glad or nothing joyful about being put down and demeaned. There's nothing joyful about resistance and persecution and difficulty and trial. There's just nothing about it itself, in and of itself. But then when you're looking at it a little bit more and it goes into it a little bit further, he then says this, he goes, because or for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So now he's saying the reason why you should consider it joy is because you're only going to grow stronger and more genuine in your faith. That's what it means there. Meaning the testing is to make you and I genuine. The testing is to get out the impurities in our lives. The testing is to change us and our mindsets and our backdrops and all the things that we've been through. The testing is to cleanse us and to wash us from sin. The testing is to say, I've got to purify you right now. So I'm going to pressure it up a little bit. I'm going to put you in the heat. And when I do, you're going to come out really good. But in the midst of it, when you're in the heat, it's not good. It's challenging. It's difficult. In the midst of it, you can't imagine God making something good out of it. But what's so cool about this is this is the premise of this short passage here in chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. The premise is that although you have trials and difficulties and uncertainties and unsureties, you know that the, God is using it, that you can be joyful because God's going to use it for his good and for your good. Because when it's for his good, that means he is carrying out his perfect will and you and I can't ever stop it. Gamaliel got, got a hold of that in chapter 5 of Acts. He says, we can't stop the hand of God. If these people are speaking about Jesus and truly is the Messiah, who are we to stop it? And this was a high priest. And even though he was of Judaism and a leader and of the Sanhedrin and one of the high priests and one of the top leaders, he recognized there was something different about this Jesus and about the way and about faith. You know, when Joy and I went uh, to move, and I've mentioned this before, with my wife being seven and a half months pregnant, 1,500 miles away in a foreign land called Dallas, Texas, the only thing I knew about Dallas was the cowboy hats and the show, as I mentioned before. And I tell you, when it was as foreign as it can be, it was foreign because I didn't know what to imagine. And I recall because when God, God was at work, I didn't even look for it. In fact, it was 1999 in September, and I thought God was calling me to a different church that I was at. I was ready to candidate at a church, and the pastor there said, you need to go to seminary. He said, the Lord's telling me you need to go to seminary. And I'm like, seminary? Okay, I, I, I'm glad I just got done with my bachelor's. I don't want to get my master's. He's like, you need to go to seminary. And then, sure enough, I told my wife, and she's like, we need to pray. And we started to pray. And a month later, I went to go see my buddy Tom, who I've known now for 26 years. He said, Bruno, you ever think about Dallas, Theological Seminary? I'm like, oh, no, I don't think I'm smart enough for Dallas. Oh, no, you guys, I'm not going to be no professor or anything like that. I'm just, I'm just happy to be a youth pastor right now. Because you've got to consider it. Prayed about it. God said, I want you to consider it. Pray about it. So I prayed about it. And then one morning I woke up in the middle of the night. Dallas, Dallas, Dallas. And I'm like, 
I hate the Dallas Cowboys, Lord. I don't want to hear Dallas. He's like, no, 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 Dallas, Dallas, Theological Seminary. And at that time, we were just coming upon email, so I had to make a phone call. And um, I called, and I applied. Didn't know what God was doing. Just said, God, you're in, I didn't look for this, Lord. You put this in front of me. I'm just going to explore it. Lo and behold, I called the woman, got, got the application in over the phone. I ha- well, I have them send it to me, and then I got my name in. They sent me the application, sent it back out. And uh, within two months, I was accepted. Shocked, but accepted. And I remember calling the woman and so excited when I got accepted. And what she was saying to me on the phone was, get ready because it's probably the most difficult time of your life. I said, nah, it's not going to be difficult. I'm too excited. I'm going to seminary. I want to get my degree, master's in theology. This is going to be great. It's probably the most difficult time I could ever record in my life. The most difficult time that Joy and I went of finance, financial struggles, difficulties, having to, to raise four children, almost four children through it, not knowing at times that we even had food on our table, down to the last dollar many times, had to, at one point we were $500 too much in our salary to get welfare. We didn't know, but we just believed, God. two or three times I wasn't supposed to go into the next semester because I didn't have the money. And said, God, you called me down here for what? I don't want to be in Dallas. God always came through in every situation. Look, I'm, I'm holding my tears and thinking at times, I'm like, God, why did you call me here? For me to, to fail? But through those trials, through those difficulties, through those hard times, now today when a young man or a young woman or a young couple or anybody comes, and my wife and I are ministering to him, we smile and laugh. We just, people are like, they're looking at us strange. We say, Oh, God will get you through it. He'll get you through it. You will have so many testimonies. You have to have a long list of testimonies of what God has done. Because what's cool about it is that God, it wasn't the circumstance that was the issue. God was testing my faith and producing endurance in me. See, the word that there is endurance. It, it, it means really steadfastness. Endurance means the capacity to hold out and bear up in the face of difficulty. I can assure you, it was many difficulties, many trials, but God got us through. See, one cannot be complete in Christ unless one faces the trial and goes through the process. God is more interested in the journey than he is in, in the destination. God's not interested in just getting you to a destination. He wants to help you through the journey. He wants to grow you and I in our faith. You might look at me and say, Bruno, wait a minute. You don't understand the challenge that I'm going through. You don't understand the trial, the difficulty. You don't understand what I'm able. I can't. There are times I wake up in the morning, I just say, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And I say, you can't. You can't do it. I can't do it. None of us can do it. Every time we try to fix a trial, we find ourselves digging deeper because we're trying to fix it. See, part of the journey is saying we can't fix it. Part of the journey is surrendering to God. Part of the journey is saying, Lord, I can't do it. I need you. Part of producing faith is saying, God, I can't intellectually figure this out. How many? I'm old enough to know now that I can't do it. The more I try, the one thing I'm convinced of and certain of is that I can't get myself out of a difficulty. 
I can assure you that. Whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's mental, physical, or spiritual, I can't get myself. You might say, wait a minute, Brittany, just sit there like a couch potato. Yeah, I like to watch TV. I like it. I like my reclining chair. I like to say, kids, okay, give me the remote. It's my turn now. I like that. I like a little bit of ice cream. I like my chips. I like comfort. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you just sit around and say, okay, God, get me out of this. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God's got to do it through you and I. We're a vessel empty. God wants to do it. He produces the faith in us. We can't produce it. That's faith. That's why we're in Christ. It's his power through us. That's why the Holy Spirit was deposited in us until the day of redemption. It wasn't until you got it. It wasn't, I'll deposit the Holy Spirit until you figure it out. We're never going to figure it out. That's why 30, 40 years in the Lord, we still struggle. I can assure you that I'm 30 years in the Lord and I still struggle with the same things. Because I can't figure it out. But God is saying, I want to produce it in you. And that's where we have to come to understand that. That's when we grasp it. Because this is what he says. He goes, he goes into verse 4 and he said, and let steadfastness or endurance have its full effect. It has its full effect when we surrender. It has to, see, someone can't be rescued when they're drowning unless they what? Surrender. I've been in that situation. I almost died drowning one time. I had to give up. And trust the person who's trying to rescue you will deliver you. No different in our faith. Whenever we try to figure it out, we sit there and try and we get headaches from it because we're trying to do it ourselves. And he goes on to say this. He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What it means is that perfect and complete is not sinless, but complete, mature, because maturity comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you believe in progressive sanctification, it's God's work in you. You yield and submit, I yield and submit, and God's work is in us. He's maturing us. He's producing faith in us. We endure through it. God changes us. We don't change ourselves. The way we change is we stop trying to figure it out ourselves. That's where we need to change. But then he goes on to say this, lacking in nothing. Why does he share lacking in nothing? Because the idea is he has to hi highlight the fact that God is going to do the entire work. But then he goes on and he highlights in verse 5. He says, if, you, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, before I get into, you know, what's lacking, it means simply deficiency. We can't do it. If you lack of anything, you ask of it. What's God's wisdom? Let's just go over what God's wisdom is. If you could, if we have that, that scripture, Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Do we have that, guys? Great. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. See, God in his wisdom is unlimited. At times it's not fathomable in our in our mindset because of our the fact that we are mortal that that we just we don't seem to get it at times we can't fathom it but God in his wisdom is unlimited proverbs 1 7 
It says, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. So wisdom comes when we fear the Lord, and that word fear is reverence, when we surrender. That's when wisdom comes. But see, too often what we, we don't understand is that when the, the meaning of lacking or deficiency in that is, it really leans towards inferiority. We're inferior. But why is it that when we, we ask for help, though, we struggle? Because it says, if we ask for help, we feel less than, incapable, insufficient, not smart enough. So instead of asking for help, we usually go it alone. Sometimes we don't even ask for help because we are afraid of criticism. So sometimes we're afraid to ask too because we're afraid we may be doing the second thing here, which is what James highlighted here. Look at, look at here to what he highlights. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who has that wisdom, who gives generously to all without reproach. Now this is important. Why, why does he mention this? Because with the lacking, we feel inferior, and with reprimanding, Sometimes we think people are not there who are accessible or approachable. Watch what this word means in the Greek. It means to find fault in a way that demeans the other. Reproach, revile, mock, heap insults upon. How often do we find ourselves reprimanding our children when they ask for help? How often when you can recall when you're tired and you're exhausted, I know most, most of us would first say, no, 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 I'm there for my children at all times. But how, when you have a busy day and a hard day and you're exhausted and you're tired and you might have just gotten yelled at at work or maybe someone just, you heard bad news and all of a sudden your kid comes up, mommy, daddy, uh, I have a question. Okay, can you help me with this? And then you tell them, they go, no, I still don't understand. They keep asking the question. Finally, leave me alone, I got to go over here. Sometimes we're not approachable. Sometimes we're not accessible because we're so busy when the child says, hey, dad, listen, I've got to quit. Can we do something together? I really would love to, but I got to work. Or sometimes we, we just, we, we think we have the right intentions, but we're reprimanding and we don't even realize we're doing that. See, with God, he doesn't. He's approachable. He's accessible, he's compassionate, he's loving, he's just, he's always just. He's fair in every way, caring, nurturing us. See, God, he's saying without reprimand, meaning God is there for you, meaning James knew, he says, you're gonna get it from other people. Your other sources around you, mom, dad, relatives, work, he knew that already at that time. People, Judaism, the leaders, the law, that's reprimanding. It's setting a measure of a law that you can't keep. So you're going to feel reprimanded. Inferior, he's saying, but with God, he's approachable. And then he goes on to say this. He goes, he'll give it to you so generously. And then he says in verse 6, but let him ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So why now does James go so far as to say that, you know what, um, you got to ask in faith, can't doubt. What does it really mean? What's he talking about with doubting? Well, the word in the Greek means to be uncertain, to be at odds with oneself. Doubting or wavering. Another part of the, of the word and the root word 
means to c- conclude that there is a difference, make a distinction, differentiate. So what this is saying is that your doubting is really double. You have a divided mind, heart. He's talking about it. In fact, twice in the book of John, John the apostle who wrote that book referred to Thomas, doubting Thomas as we know, although it doesn't say that in the scriptures, it just says Thomas. But the, he uses two words there for Thomas. And the second word means twins. Now today we would celebrate twins in every aspect. Whenever someone has twins, wow, you see two of something, great. It's not just one candy bar, it's two candy bars, awesome. It's not one bowl of ice cream, it's two, but great, I love twins. Another bowl of spaghetti. But here's the thing, twins are celebrated in every way, double the pleasure. But in the first century, it was considered an omen. It was negative. And so what happened was when you saw double, the word double or twins would also refer to doubting. And it would have a ne- negative connotation. And so, in fact, one of the Proverbs, a Chinese proverb says it's like a person with two feet and going like this, one direction, two direction, going in this, trying to go in the same direction. Doubting is doing this, going back and forth. That's what the word means. So when we're doubting, we're wavering. So what James is saying is that we have to ask in faith because we must have an undivided faith. One that is not wavering. One that's single focused on God. One that is certain, not one that is uncertain. One that is at at odds with ourselves. See, here's what I think happens. And this is just me looking in. It's not something I got in a commentary. I think so often we doubt God because we can't figure it out. We put so much faith in ourselves to figure it out intellectually or figure out a situation to get ourselves out of a trial that when we can't figure it out, we really don't trust God because we have to figure it out. Intellectually, you have to say, it's got to make sense before I do this. And so we kind of, what we do is we justify it and rationalize it and we, we doubt because we're, that double-mindedness is that we're putting our trust in ourselves, but then we're putting our trust in God. Then we're putting our trust in self, then we put our trust in, well, if I can't figure it out, should I trust God? But I have to figure it out because I can't trust God unless I'm really confident that I can trust God. And the doubting goes back and forth. And God's saying, you gotta ask in faith. Faith means that the situation may seem uncertain, The trial may be pressured. It may be impossible. But there's one thing that is certain. God. You see, that's that's kind of what I wrote here. I just, I I said too often that I've learned even in my own history that I'd said that earlier. I said, if you're a Christian, you will never find certainty in your circumstances. You will never find certainty in people you will never find certainty in yourself, but you will find certainty in your faith in Christ because it's a reliable source, proven, faithful, and never able to fail. That is certainty. Why? That's what James was trying to highlight, that God, we must focus on the one who is certain, his attributes and his faithfulness. God will do so. But here's what he says in verse 7 because this is important. He says, for that person must 
not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If we're like that person with two feet in each boat going back and forth, trying to go in one direction, really going back and forth, and we're doubting and we're uncertain and we're putting too much trust in ourselves to figure it out, God's saying, why would I give you any more? Why would I entrust anything more to you? You're wavering. You're not focused on me. You're focused on yourself. You're focused on the situation. You're focused on other people. I can't give it to you. James is saying he won't give you anything. This is highlighted to what Jesus said. He goes, he says, you know, with which, that which is much more given is, is, is much more received. But he goes on to say this. Jesus highlighted that if you have faith and you do not doubt, in, in Matthew 21, 21, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has to be done to the fig tree, he mentioned, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. So that when we have faith and we're singly focused on God, we could even move mountains. Now, metaphorically or physically or whatever, however we want to literally take that, we have mountains in front of us as trials. And God's saying, if you focus on me, I'll remove the mountain. Just put your focus on me. Don't try to figure the situation out. Don't try to intellectually make sense of it. If I look at my life and I look back at all the things I went through, I would say it doesn't make sense logically. But as I look back, I say, wow, God, look at all the mountains that you moved in my life. The times when I was divided in my heart is when I tried to figure it out myself. But the times where it was undivided was when I said, I'm focusing on Jesus and the cross and my faith, knowing he can do it, I can't do it, he produces it, I don't produce it. That's when faith is at its greatest effect. But you and I, he won't entrust us any more than what's been given to us if we're not singly focused on God. In our lives, in this church, we know it's a challenge. I've been here with you guys for a little over a year. It's a challenge. You look around, you're saying, where are we going? What are we doing? You know what? It's not for us to figure it out. We don't know. But it's okay because God knows. We need to focus on him. What I would do is I would put my total focus on him, pray, surrender, seek, and chase after him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. Let him handle all this because he can. What we need to be is in tune with him, not doubting. Because then when we doubt, we're trying to put the emphasis and the honus on us. I have learned that all doubting does is digs the hole deeper. And then I lose my focus on God. But when I just focus on the Lord, that I can be joyful. Like it says, consider it all joy. Because my focus is on him. He's producing the faith in me. So that's where we need to be. Let God figure. Pray. Seek. This is what, when it says ask, it's, it's really a prayer. In verse 5, it's a prayer. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. That's a prayer. That's reference to prayer. How many of you are praying to the God who's certain he can handle this? How many of you are praying and believing that you're certain God will get you out of this situation? Whatever, the church, your situation, in your life. How many of you are really believing and surrendering and submitting and saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? If you lack wisdom, ask of it. How many of you praying and asking of it? Or are you sitting back and doubting and saying, I've got to figure this out before I can ask? See, that's not faith. That's faith in yourself, faith in a person, faith in a situation, not faith in God. We can use past situations saying these are the trends, but ultimately 
God. And that's what James is, because he goes on to say this, he is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Again, the word is really simple. Double-mindedness, to be uncertain about the truth of something. You're just uncertain. So every time we doubt and we put our faith in ourselves and the situation or people, we're just becoming more uncertain about it. We think we're becoming certain, but we're really gradually becoming more uncertain. And we're digging our hole a little bit deeper. I love what this commentary said about this passage. And he said this. It says, how can I ask anything from the Lord and receive it after having sinned so greatly against him? Meaning that's a doubt. Doubt in his mercy and his grace and, and his love. He says, this admonition is then beautifully and profoundly supported. Whoever does not rid himself of that anxious question when praying degrades God. Watch this. He goes on, he said, for he thinks that God bears grudges with regard to evil in the same way that humans do. But what, whoever purifies his heart from all the vanities of this world turns himself to God with undivided heart and without any doubting places his hope in the granting of the petition such a one will receive. That's what he's referring to verse 7. Meaning if we continually think that we sin so great that God can't receive us, then what we do is we miss out because we degrade God. We say that he can't get us out of it. See, the beauty of this all is that, I'm going to share this, doubt is the chiasm chasm between knowing about God and knowing God. That's doubt. See, doubt is, is that chasm that stops us from knowing God. That's why when he says, Luke 12, 48, Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they've entrusted much, they will demand the more. God will entrust to you and I if we're singly focused with an undivided faith toward him. See, when we have an undivided faith, we're certain of God's attributes and abilities, certain of God's wisdom, certain of God's best for his people. That's what we know. So let me ask you a few questions here. Are you uncertain about something? Are you enduring a difficult trial? I mean, Bethlehem Church is going through a difficult trial. But you might be going through a trial yourself that's difficult. It might be something personal. Are you uncertain about where God wants to use you in your walk with him? You want to be valuable. You want to be used of God. I get it. I do too. I want to be using my gifts for the kingdom of God. Does life just seem uncertain? Let me encourage you to do something this week. Focus on the Lord. Enjoy him. Place your trust in him and not your ability to figure it out. He already has it figured out. I want to give you a moment for just, just a short moment this morning as the worship team is quietly coming up. I want to give you a few short moments to pray. This may be your time. Maybe you've been doubting for a long time. Maybe you've been saying, you know what? I didn't realize it was doubt. I just thought it was struggle. But maybe it's doubt. Maybe I am uncertain. It's become to the point where I'm doubting God completely. 
I don't even know if he can do it or not. That's a good place to be. There's a, there's a bad place to be in doubt, and they say a good place to be in doubt. Here's the good place. If you can now recognize through the power of the Holy Spirit that you're doubting, that's a good place. Because now you have the chance to say, God, I'm doubting. Could you help me in my unbelief or in my doubting? Now, unbelief goes a little further. I don't, doubting doesn't go that close because you can survive in doubting. It's just confusing. But unbelief is like a deviant, deceptive heart toward God saying, I don't want anything to do with you right now. I don't believe you. So doubting is something where it's uncertain. So where are you uncertain? Where can you ask God? Let me just give you a moment and let's pray and ask God. Let's bow your heads for just a moment while you have a minute before we close out after the song. I'm going to ask you just a few more questions. Are you deficient, lacking something in your life? You're uncertain. You know it's lacking. Something's going on. The Bible says to ask for wisdom of God. Are you uncertain about something? Place your focus on the one who is certain. God, single focused. Do you catch yourself being double-minded? You have an opportunity today to be single-minded and start your week that way. Let me encourage you to continue to pray. Lord, I thank you for the sincerity of the people's hearts in here. It's either they're sleeping, because I, I can hear a pin drop, or they're really sincere asking you to do something in their lives. I want to believe that, Lord. And Lord, I, I want to thank you because you've given us an opportunity today while we're still breathing to recognize something in our lives that we might be doubting. We might feel inferior. There might be some uncertainty. We just don't know. God, lead us back to a relationship of certainty with you. Single focus, not double-minded, not doubting. Single focused. We're going to doubt once in a while, but that you would teach us to return back to you. Lord, continue to lead us here at Bethlehem Church. Continue to refer to us what you want to do. Let us just focus on you. You'll figure this all out. We know you will. Help us to grow and Use this time of trial and difficulty to test us and produce faith in us. Lord, we're excited about what you're going to do. Because this is your church. These are your people. This is your word. The gospel is yours. We just pray that we will be servants, submissive to you, asking you for wisdom. So that, Lord, when we walk with you, we can walk with you excited and joyful in our trial. And pray that today we'll be excited even so. We love you. We surrender our lives to you in Jesus' name.